0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon.
1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. And today I'm speaking with deer biologist Brad Cohen. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You might notice that this is not the voice of Mark Kenyon. He sent me an email last week and said that he picked up a new hobby, which is learning fictional languages. And he's off to a convention in Omaha to really become, and this is his words, not mine, fluent in Wookiee. That's no joke. And I don't know what it means. And at this point, I'm too scared to ask. So anyway, today I'm speaking with Bradley Cohen who is a deer biologist and a researcher. Cohen is also a passionate bow hunter, and he happens to be an expert on deer vision. He's responsible for developing and seeing through one of the most comprehensive studies on deer vision that exists. His findings, which we discuss in detail throughout this episode, are fascinating, and some of them will directly help you become a better deer hunter. Plus, it's just really interesting stuff to learn about our favorite game animal. Brad, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, man. Hey, good to be here, Tony. You you come highly recommended from uh, our very own Patrick Durkin, and I I told Pat that I was looking for somebody who was an expert in deer vision, and he said there's only one place you got to go for this. And so I really appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk with me today on uh, on whitetails and what they really see and what you've learned about that.
2: Yeah, man. Anything I can do to help uh, share the information we have and the science we do, I'm happy to. I'm happy to be part of it.
1: So can you just, before we dive into this, can you give the listeners just a breakdown of, you know, where you're doing your research, what you're doing, uh, how you got into it a little bit?
2: Right, so um, I originally am from New York and then I got a master's degree at the University of Georgia, working under Carl Miller and Bob Warren. And as part of that research, we started to examine uh, deer vision a little bit more into what colors can they see And a lot of it was focused on getting a behavioral measure or having them basically tell us in their own unique deer way uh, what colors they could see. And then I stayed at University of Georgia working on deer during my Ph.D., doing something completely different. But during that time, we had several other students coming through working on deer vision. And I oversaw that research. Um, So basically, we've done in total, I've been part of about four studies focused on deer vision, anything from their color to their visual or color sensitivity, their visual acuity to their movement sensitivity.
1: So uh, let's, let's back up a second here. Out of all the stuff that you could study out there, why, how, how did you settle on what, how did this become a relevant topic of research?
2: So let me back up a little bit more and just tell you that when I went I got my undergrad degree from a general biology program in upstate New York and I went to this college it was called SUNY Geneseo and I went there because it was right next to my hunting spot that I grew up deer hunting my whole life so like hunting's always kind of been a big central role in my life and I I actually just put into Google Scholar the word deer and Carl Miller came up and that's how I kind of met him but when I went down there, my degrees were actually I got biology or bachelor degrees in biology and psychology. All right. So that's going to be important when we talk about how I understood how to kind of get these measures. But we went down there and had a unique opportunity. Most students that come into the wildlife profession, they get money from a grant or from a grant. And that granting agency typically has specific objectives. I want this, this, and this done. Well, I was on a, on money that was basically left over from the project. Like They had, there was a pot of money and there was no direct deliverables to be associated. And I was so lucky in that uh, Dr. Warren and Dr. Miller were just like, let's talk about some of the things we don't understand about deer biology. Now, in this case, the money was coming from the Georgia Department of Transportation, which it's kind of weird to think about that, but they were interested in deer vision from the sake of how can we build mitigation devices to get deer off the road. And some of that comes back to just basic biology of deer. And so- Uh, The world was my oyster. I kind of had the experience to understand like this was a cool study and the funding agency had the want to like, know, and we just took off from there.
1: So you, you kind of, you kind of lucked into sort of an open lane there with that money already being there. And this was driven by, I'm assuming the the DOT was looking at this going, how do we prevent vehicle collisions with deer? And you thought, well, (laughs) we've we've tried the little whistlers on the bumper and we tried some, you know, oral. A-U-R-A-L, uh, methods, but you're, you're like, well, how do we, how do we make something that's a visual deterrent to them?
2: Yeah. So like the, the Georgia department of transportation been funding research for a little bit uh, of time trying to be like, you know, what do fences do to deer behavior? Well, it just creates a little hotspot where they can cross the fence, uh, on the front and back end of it. Uh, Hey, do deer whistles work? Do roadside reflectors work? And the answer was always, no, they don't work. They don't work. And because it's not based on deer biology. So the, Georgia Department of Transportation said, hold on, let's take a step back. Let's tell us what deer can see, what they can hear, and then let us kind of work with you to design these devices that would mitigate it. In this case, it was, uh, and we wanted to understand things like how does deer vision affect the deer in the headlight look, right? So one of the applications of our research was working towards building a better headlight that would be less bright to a deer, but similar brightness to you and I. So they don't get like, Oh my God, they don't know cars there. They just know that something very bright is coming at them. And so that's kind of the application that Georgia department of transportation was in. But then being the wildlife biologists and hunters that we are, we're always thinking about, okay, what are the other applications?
1: So you looked at this and you said, this is a perfect opportunity. And then I'm assuming as soon as this, This opportunity came up, you looked to see what other studies had been done, and you saw there was kind of a pretty big gap there in our understanding of deer vision.
2: It it was kind of, it's kind of stunning when you think about one of the most well-studied animals in the world, and yet how little we understood about their just basic biology. What do they hear? What do they see? All of that. And typically it's because the people that study deer tend to be more application minded. We're always trying to say, okay, let's go out and study them in their natural environment and then we'll make hypotheses based on that. And coming from that general biology background, I was more interested in the, okay, well, let's go back to the physiology point of view and then we can project out to why they act like they do.
1: Yeah. So you had a, you, you had a unique opportunity to use pen raised deer and design a, I mean, it, it looked like almost like a Pavlovian path toward, uh, you know, training deer and then using that that food reward training to start to figure out their their vision. So before before we get into the design of that study, when you when you were like, all right, I'm going to do this, or you you were really kicking this around. You're talking to Carl Miller and a couple other people. Were, did you kind of have it in your mind? Were you like, I, I think I know how deer see, or did, was there like a basic biological understanding of the rods and cones and the design of a deer's eye? Where, so you went into it and you like, I think I got this already or not really.
2: So back about, oh, don't quote me on it, maybe 20 years before that jay knights and a bunch of other research now jay knights is is an interesting character in and of himself he's he's now at the university of washington and is like the expert on animal vision he single-handedly is like working to cure color blindness in humans working with monkeys i mean the guy's like way above my pay grade but he had actually come to the university of georgia about 20 years before that and basically done a study where you simply hook up electrodes to an animal's head and you flicker lights in their eye and you're looking for an electrical signal pulsing from the retina. Every time you pulse a light, you get that, that signal, that cellular signal. And from that, we can at least tell um, how many cones an animal has, and that's cones are what seeks color. Uh, do we have rods, which are basically the more light sensitive, black and white type um, photoreceptors? And then also, like, what are the peak sensitivities of those cones and rods? So he already had laid that out. But you have to understand, oftentimes, that cellular response isn't always the same way that an animal perceives it. Because in the truth, perception is both mediated by the cellular responses of, of your retina or something like that, but also your brain, right? And, you know, for example, you and I, if we just looked at our cellular responses, we'd be very sensitive to blue, like we're, but the truth is, we have so many different ways we inhibit blue in from being uh, perceived by us, and that we are very poor at perceiving any type of blue color. But that same type of study, just looking at the cellular, would say, hey, we can see it pretty well. So there's often this disconnect. Which that's where we were going was, okay, we have some guesstimate on what we think deer might, the colors they might be able to see, but we need a behavioral confirmation. We need them to tell us that they're perceiving this. Color in real life, so that we know. Hey, they see it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So essentially, before your study, we we you could kind of say, okay, this is the spectrum they can see. These are the colors they're they're picking up. We think. We hope. We, well, okay. It, it it appears that way, but that's as far as it goes, right? Like you don't know to what degree, and you don't know what that means to them. Right. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. And, and so, what did you do with that? You said that's not enough, dude. Let's 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 dive deeper. Yeah.
2: So. We had we had tried to train, I was like, listen, I think we can train deer to respond to light. In other words, it's just a classic Pavlovian dog type experiment where we're going to say, hey, um, there's two troughs with a treat. One of them is going to have allow you to have access to a treat, uh, and it's going to have a light on over it. The other trough will still have the treat, but if you try and approach it, it's going to shut the doors and you're not going to get that treat at all. I said, that's just a, it's actually in psychology called a Skinner box. It's it's a super basic way we train animals. And to be honest, I remember very distinctly Carl Miller kind of laughing it off because we had tried to train deer before. And when you're hand raising deer, and because these have to be tamed deer and you're trying to do this in a non-automated way, it's, it's impossible. You can't get the control that you need, the number of repetitions that you need you know, I think the student before me, you know, took 15 deer home and raised them by themselves only to have one that even like kind of could do a, an experiment with vision. And so the first thing was like, could we even get this to work with the deer? Understand that if we presented them to two troughs to eat out of both with the treat, but only to approach the trough with the light on just a bright light, would they go to it? And boom, we did it automated. We basically, I had to learn computer language. It was just, it was fun, but I never want to do it again. But by the end of it, we had shown very clearly at least with one deer, hey, we can at least train a deer to respond to a light being on
1: does that make sense so the the first hurdle that you bumped into was just that people thought you wouldn't be able to train deer for a measured response
2: yeah it, in an, it was very difficult uh, prior to getting the type of technology that you needed to automate the process, and basically all. I did, along with David Osborne, who's a research coordinator at the University of Georgia, is we worked actually with what we call the instrument shop at the University of Georgia. These are people that make fancy instruments for specific purposes, and they made an entire set of devices that allowed us to automate the process entirely. I would hit a button on my computer that says start, and then I'd show up two days later to collect the data, and during those two days, I didn't have to be there, but the deer was constantly being trained on these series of trials where the trough's open up the treats there, the light turns on. If the deer picks the lit trough, you get to eat the treat. If you don't, it closes. And, and very quickly within a couple of days, the, that first deer learned, okay, I'm going to approach the lit trough. And then it was off to the races, so to say.
1: How, how long did it take those deer to start figuring that out?
2: Generally, we were able to train them within a week to two weeks. So, and that means that they were getting, they were going to the trough with the light on over it, uh, over 80% of the time very quickly. Now for animals, that's pretty good. You know, you and I would have figured out in minutes for an animal to do it in a, about a two week span was pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I work in the dog space a lot and train dogs a lot. And it's so, it's just, you know, people will argue whether treat training is valuable for puppies or not. I'm like. So valuable and so easy, you know, and, and that's an animal that's been bred to work with us. So you get the eye contact, and you have some benefits over deer, in a, in a, multiple different ways. But so you you looked at this, and did you did you do this first stage just as a proof of concepts?
2: Yeah, no, one hundred percent. It was a proof of concept. Uh, we came together as a group and kind of said, okay, we've got a little bit of money that we're willing to put towards this device, and uh, they gave us the green light. To uh, Dr. Miller in particular was skeptical about. idea of it and he's like okay not in a bad way just like prove it to me and when we proved it it was like all thumbs up let's go this is this is great so so what did you do from there we then so we wound up training a total of seven deer so to the same process And and they were all adult does right all adult does and and the reason is let me just tell you why we did choose does versus bucks we had tame bucks um but the thing is that bucks during the rut or just most of the time they're angry. And when they're tamed, they're dangerous because they see you as just another deer. So they'll happily attack every single thing that's around. So females, uh, a lot easier to work with. Yeah.
1: And there, and there was no reason to believe that would bias the results at all. Right.
2: No, not at all. Okay. No, no. there's no, there's really no difference across uh, sexes in animals as far as what they can see or can't see. Um, so we, we train them to that, and then we get very, we worked with Energizer to get very, very specific wavelength LEDs. Now, this is, this is where it kind of gets interesting. So you get these LEDs and they're specific wavelengths. Like, it's not just like this is a blue color, it's like this is a wavelength in the blue color. And we started off, it, it, the light starts off as intense as possible, very bright. And we train, and the deer instantly adapt. They're like, oh, it's not a bright white light anymore, it's a bright blue light. And so they start to um, actually train to that. And then once you get them completely good to go, then you start to actually have the intensity because your ability to see something of a color, right? Isn't just the wavelength or the color itself. It's the intensity at which it's being presented to you, if that makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have the intensities until basically they were performing at chance. In other words, they stopped being able to see the light and they were just randomly approaching the trough cause they couldn't see it. Um, and so we did that for a bunch of different wavelengths of light, both in the blue wavelength, which is like, um, in the 400 nanometers, which doesn't matter for here, but in the short wavelength and the long wavelength, which is the reds. And, and what did you start to find? I was, I was fascinated. So with deer, deer were able to sp- see blue much better than we can. Uh, Typically, something like 20 times uh, enhanced sensitivity to blue colors than we have. So there were times when I was testing blue wavelengths where I couldn't see that the light was on, but the deer could. And on the other side of it is they could not see reds hardly at all, very low sensitivity to reds. And so what what it did is enables to confirm those kind of previous anatomical or physiological measurements. And now we can go from there to figure out, okay, this is how a deer perceives its world.
1: So there, before you did this, there was the suspicion that this is what it was going to show that, that they were very sensitive to blues and not reds.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what we thought would probably, you know, that, that was what the anatomical measures had suggested.
1: So what surprised you about it then? Was it, was it like the degree at which they could see the blues?
2: So the degree, it wasn't just like, okay, actually seeing it play out by your own experience, just how different the sensitivity is, but also we expected subtle or quite large differences actually in the anatomical structure or the anatomical measurements versus the behavioral measurements, because time and time again, that's what we see in the animal world. But in this case, they almost overlapped perfectly. So, um, Whatever is going on in the cells is being transferred perfectly to the brain. It's like a beautiful synchrony. And there's no, um, like for us, our lenses clean up a lot of light. Like they get rid of a bunch of different light that you and I would otherwise process. For a deer, that's clearly not the case. You see where I'm going with this was there was almost no difference. And so now we have a really clear sense of what they can see.
1: Can, can you explain that further? Like wh- wh- how do you, well, first off, how do you know that? Like, how did did this show that that was that clear to them?
2: Oh, okay. All right. So we take, let me back up a little bit here, and I don't want to go in the weeds. So if I go too much into it, just play with me here and, and say, okay, that's enough. But you get these measures, all right? So you actually have the intensity of light that they no longer can see, right, at each wavelength. Then there is an... A crazy equation that has 23 different variables don't ask me to understand them or explain them but it has 23 different variables and you input the data we collected which is literally this wavelength at this intensity you just basically track that over time and it spits out a beautiful curve okay and these curves are basically curves for your photo your actual true sensitivity to different wavelengths of light and so we're taking our real data and taking what we understand about how photoreceptors actually work, and we're projecting that onto uh this kind of sensitivity graph. Does that make sense? Sort of. You gotta
1: remember, I write squirrel hunting articles for a living. So this is <laughs> this is this is heavy stuff. But
2: trust me, I, I'm not yeah, I don't mean to make it that heavy, and it's still heavy stuff for me. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of heavy lifting that occurred behind the scenes with dr knights and all those people you know what i'm saying <laughs> well I,
1: I love it so you you start to figure this out and you and by having the the wavelengths you start to go okay we know where the limits are on that we know what the what the the deers range and you didn't see any variance in those seven deer that were the test subjects they all were consistent across each deer
2: yeah so deer were remarkably similar You know, there's always variation, right? There's some that are more trainable than others. You know, you always get the one deer that's the exceptional performer. You get the one that's like kind of dumb, but they were pretty similar. And um, then we go, okay, well, this is the actual limits. We understand the outer limits on both sides from the reds to the blues. And we understand now, okay, based on how we measured it, they definitely only have two cones. They definitely have their cones peaked at these wavelengths. And we understand now what the different colors they can see, how the different intensities of those colors interplay, we can lay out it almost with perfect pers- or with precision how it, at least the color world looks to deer.
1: So let, let's talk about that. Where, where, like evolutionary wise, where's the benefit to, to seeing those those blues so vividly and not seeing the reds?
2: all right, let's back up a second here and just understand that. Deer do not perceive their world anything similar to like how we do, especially with colors. But what you have to understand is that deer are very sensitive to blue colors, which we are not sensitive to deer are not sensitive to red colors, which you and I are more sensitive to. So the blue coloration being sensitive to that makes a lot of sense from kind of uh, an evolutionary perspective. If, if only because if you look at the light that's available during Sunset and sunrise, a lot of that is actually in the blue spectrum. So here's the crazy thing. I want you to sit back and think when you're sitting there 30 minutes prior to sunset and that just twinge of twilight twilights coming over or, or, or on sunrise, right? Just a little bit. That world is lit up for a deer. But because you and I don't see blues very well, it's dark to us. I don't know, that's kind of crazy to think, right? But our own, our lack of sensitivity to the light that's most available during sunrise and sunset yeah. is why it's dark to us, and theoretically why deer are most sensitive to it because it's the light that's available when they move the most.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today.
1: This is going to be a crazy... So I just, Mark, the the host of this podcast, recommended a a book about bio, what was it called? It was about evolutionary biology on islands. I can't, I can't remember the the technical term for it, but in in that book, there was, there was some examples of studying baboons and some other primates and how it, it tied loosely to us being so, you know, like so reliant on daylight And so scared of nighttime predators that our eyes evolved for lots of daylight coming in because that's when we're most active and we have to get our stuff done before the things that eat us come out at night. And what you're saying is deer, because their their primary movement periods are first and last light, their eyes have evolved or their vision has evolved to take advantage of the wavelengths that are most popular then. Or that most bingo,
2: what most available then. So in times of perceived darkness for us and other predators, right, before nighttime and before, like, you know, not peak daytime, deer see a well-lit environment where they can easily distinguish predators, no problem.
1: That, oh, okay, so then let me ask you this. If, if that's the case, and, or that is the case, how does that tie into their ability to see it at night in the dark?
2: Uh, so that's a little bit different. That's an anatomical feature of their eye. They have what's called a tapetum lucidum, which is basically nothing more than a reflective lens on the back end. You know that like when you spotlight deer and they, they their eyes glow, that's actually the light being reflected back into their retina. So it hits their retina and goes out and then gets reflected back. So what they're doing is like they're supersizing the amount of light that's there. So they're super efficient about gathering light. So, while things might be in absolute darkness to to us, it's actually a little more lit to a deer. So that's how they're able to see it in nighttime. So well is that they're able to more efficiently harness for lack of a better word available light. So that's, I mean,
1: that sort of just plays off of like, you know, we, we just launched that James Webb Webb telescope into space and it's got a, you know, it's got mirrors on it that are the size of a tennis court to be able to look, you know, at light that was created 13 billion years ago, this is a mini version of just bouncing light back and forth and taking advantage of it.
2: Matt, I'll tell you what, it's the coolest part about being in this field is the crazy stuff that you learn about how creators have adapted to live in their environment, but that's exactly what they're doing. It's nothing more than a reflective mirror to get more light at nighttime. Is it, is that because const- we don't move during, during night. Well, sure. I mean, is that consistent across
1: all, you know, I mean, you see raccoons, the same thing, walleyes, same thing. It's all, that's what that is.
2: All nocturnal, any animal that has some kind of peak activity at night, most animals tend to have that kind of feature. It goes by a bunch of different names, but yeah, a reflective layer in their eye.
1: Is there, is there a, is there some kind of loss in their ability in the daylight because of that, then like in, in bright daylight. Cause I know, I know there is with the, the, the blue light to some extent. Right. But also, you know, that ability to harness that much light when it's dark to us, is there a sacrifice on the daylight side?
2: Not necessarily. All they do is similar to us. They just contract their, their lens and everything real, real tight. So if you actually look at the pupil of a deer's eye during the daytime, it'll be really, really, really small. But during night, that sucker's huge. So basically, all they're doing is controlling the amount of light that's coming in during the daytime by just letting a very little amount of light come in, if that makes sense.
1: Do, do they have a greater degree of dilation that they can do with their pupils than than us? It's It's quite a bit bigger, right?
2: Yeah, yep. Yeah, and they also have a slit eye, so they have more surface area that they're exposing to their eye as they dilate. So as they constrict, they're basically lift They're lessening and lessening to a much larger extent your, than yours and eyes. I would be. <laughs> all right. So what is, what does this
1: knowledge do for us as hunters? I know everybody's listening to this. Like, all right, getting past the side, like what kind of, what, what color should I be wearing out there? What should I be aware of just color wise, not movement yet? Cause I want to talk about movement.
2: You don't want me to jump into movement? Oh, don't wear bl- blue jeans or any of that stuff. And you got on, all right. So you've already made me go like way down the rabbit hole here. i God Almighty. There were some tech terms thrown out there, but let me just tell you this. You got to understand that, like, they only have two cones. And it, a surface value, I don't think it's easy to appreciate what that means, but we have three cones. And uh, it means that we can see about a million variations in color, subtle variations, right? Uh, deer, just by having one less cone, it means that they see much less. Variations in color. They basically only see yellow into a yellowish green color and blue. That's it. So your red is yellow, your orange is yellow, your blue is blue. When you start to think about how everything we see out there for even just something like camo is, you know, a variation of green and brown and all this, and then you kind of throw that into how a deer sees it, it's all just the same yellow. Like, you're basically in a lot of different camo patterns one glorious big blob of yellow and we'll explain why that really probably doesn't matter all that much and when you get to movement so is this when you you know when
1: i started hunting and you know you can kind of follow the the evolution of camo patterns to some extent for a while there was a huge push for photorealistic elements right like how do you take a high resolution image of the woods or the leaves or the oak, you know, oak leaves or whatever, get it right on a on a shirt or a jacket whatever and it looks just like that and we've sort of moved beyond that to these abstract jumbled kind of shading. That is that a
2: direct response to what we've learned about deer vision? No, it's the camouflage world is simply just what people think is cool in the moment. It's just sales. And the deer, yeah. I mean, it's all sales. I mean, but you know, uh, it's not to say that like Sitka type gears aren't based on some biology. They certainly are like they worked with J Knights to come up with that pattern. Um, but there's a couple things to understand. Uh, let me just continue with this one thing. All right. So everything's kind of green. And then also when deer are most active sunrise and sunset, there are a lot of blues in the environment. Well, we, I've done spectral reflectance patterning on a lot of different camo patterns, any type of white color um, just through the dyeing process that camouflage companies use a deer would perceive that as blue. Um, The other thing is like, so you have a, a bunch of blue stuff. And then also like definitely don't use any type of detergents with the typical detergents you guys would use because there are like UV or blue enhancers in there that, you and i don't see as blue because we can't see it it just brightens our shirts deer would see that as, as certainly some kind of bluish hue or coloration so all that comes together like if you look at my camp so like i made i made a camo way back when after i did this and i kind of just use subtle variations of that like i just make my own camo nowadays because and it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen it's got a ton of different colors on it it's got different brightnesses and and it's all related to also like i'm a i, I just bow hunt so like it's also related to decreasing my movements, but it doesn't look like anything that's out there because most of what's out there is literally just based on making it look cool. So hunters buy it. <laughs>
1: uh, I, I have, have you ever, I'm sure you have uh, paid attention to, you know, the fishing industry and there's very similar arguments for fishing lures as well. And the the colors that they think that, you know, bass can see, for example, you know, like they see orange really well, they think, and they, you know red disappears pretty quickly underwater and the you know and it's it's made to catch it it made to catch you know your dollars and not fish necessarily but is so is there is there any benefit then uh, to you know the the new wave of patterns that you see out there?
2: yeah, I think they're a little bit more efficient and kind of you know they have. So they'll talk about this macro pattern versus micro pattern. And that's, that's fancy words for saying big blobs versus small blobs. And, and the bigger blobs do tend to be like um, more differentiated, but yeah, you're hundred percent right. It's all about, and this isn't a bad thing, right? People a lot of people are trying to do their best, but you know, it's like, you know, chartreuse lures, my favorite lore in the world to use is chartreuse. And I found out like two years ago that bass can't even see that color i'm like you know so this is just some kind of variation of silver to them yep it's all a matter of like you're selling the people on what they want to, to um to wear well
1: is, isn't is there sort of a kind of like a who cares you know component to this because we know i mean i so i, I was just writing a piece about getting turkeys to shock gobble and you know Lately, especially Michael Chamberlain's been out talking about turkeys a lot. He's—I'm actually going to have him on one of these episodes too, and talking about how you know we're reversing the the order of turkeys, right? When we, when we go out and call a bird in, you know, a, a long beard in or a tom, whatever, we're kind of like reversing what the nature has you know designed this to do. But at the same time, thousands and thousands of turkeys are killed that way. So part part of it is like an—it's just an academic exercise when we can go out and I can call in turkeys and go, well, this one didn't follow the rules and that one didn't. And we know that the, the camo patterns that we use, I mean, regardless of what deer see, we still kill a lot of them wearing them.
2: It, it's, it's all right. All right. I'm, I'm a big Turkey hunter, big duck hunter, big deer hunter. When you hunt, it's not just enough to be like, okay, I've killed a deer. You know what haunts you is the time that one time that big deer came in and busted you. And that's the stuff as hunters that we obsess over. It's those little variations of like, I shouldn't have moved. Why did I stand so early? Why you know, why didn't I find a better background? All of these things. So yeah. In the end, I think hunting has evolved into, like, we know 99% of what works, right? It's all these little things that we want to find out to make it better because we're obsessive and it's our, you know, our hobby. And when we think of it that way, then maybe it does matter when you're talking about just trying to tinker with things. But overall, no. You know what? People could walk around in blue jeans and a white shirt and shoot the crap out of deer anyway, you know?
1: Well, isn't there... Isn't there some level of uh, a benefit too from the materials that are used? Is, is it like a softer material better as far as light reflection or not?
2: So there's different types of materials that go through, So the materials themselves. And don't quote me on everything here, but basically there's different materials go through different processing on the front end to basically how they're going to be colored white before they're actually camouflaged. And you can, in that process, ingrain these UV brighteners into the fabric, okay? And those are gonna be a little stiffer to the touch. They're gonna be a little bit harder, but they're gonna last longer. They're gonna be brighter longer. And that's why the kind of, everyone kind of went that way originally. was like, okay, we're making a better quality product, but certainly to a uh, hunter, they're less comfortable and to a deer, they're more visibly blue. And so now they kind of switched the other way around, which is a, a different dyeing process that cuts down on that, makes it more more supple. Got it.
1: All right, let's move on from deer colors. What do, what are we? I, I think this might be more important. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but what did we learn about deer vision as far as catching movement?
2: All right, let me let me start off with something. First, let me cover that movements related to also their visual acuity, or basically like you know how you and I have 20/20 vision all right, you got to understand that like deer have about 2100 vision. So everything's blurry to them. All right. So when you think about everything being blurry to them, what they're trying to pick up on is a blob that moves around. Okay. This is important to understand because it also comes back to camouflage and being one big blob. If you think about what their whole job in life is to basically see that predator on the horizon or see them in the woods and it's just a blob moving around, detect them and haul. Uh, There's a couple things you got to understand. Deer's eyes don't overlap that well, so they don't have good depth perception, but they have a really good field of view and the way their rods are kind of spaced out across their eyes. They can pick up detection like that. Now it's not just our pickup movement just like that. Now here's the thing. They also process this, this is like philosophical, but it's actually important. All right. Just hang with me. We've done this experiment. It it fascinates me, but like they, and if you want the details, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, I think it's awesome. But what you have to understand is that they pick, they perceive time to perceive time twice as slow. In other words, they pick up movement twice as easily. They pick up movement twice as easily. Okay. Hold on. How- slow motion to them. I know you won't believe me, but things happen in slow motion to them. They react twice as fast as we do. They see things twice as quick. They detect things twice as easy.
1: How do we know how deer perceive
2: time? I got to know that. All right. This is, this is crazy. All right. Look, okay. Look up flicker fusion rate. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, look, look this up. But basically, you know, back in the day, When you when you had a TV uh, before LEDs and all these other TVs came out, you know, basically you're stringing together these still pictures on TV and all TVs have to have what's called a flicker rate. And they had to put it above 60. And the reason they had to put it above 60 is because you and I also see things in still frames and our brain refreshes that still image at 60 times per second and creates a holistic movement pattern. But that is not the same across animals. And so um, this is why like a dog actually has a higher flicker fusion rate. And back in the day when you had an old TV, a dog wouldn't watch TV with you because it looked like a bunch of still pictures to them. Okay. So here, all right. But that also that flicker fusion rate is also how fast you're refreshing time or movement or all of these things. So like, have you ever wondered how the hell a bat can catch a bug or like how a, a bird is able to in, you know hit another bird in in air it's because they're they're like rapidly processing these images like super fast now that relates to their lifespan like if you look in the literature there's only so many flicker and so many uh, times you get that that refresh and then you're dead so like short-lived animals refresh a lot and long-lived animals don't and if you want to go into the crazy world it's like yes a, a fruit fly that lives 24 hours even they perceive like an entire lifespan that in their own theoretical world is as long as ours. Yeah. So, yes, you're picking that stuff up twice as fast.
1: So I read something recently about that. It might have had something to do with space travel or something, but it was about it was like from a fruit fly's perspective on what what it would see if you were going to smash it. And it was like a description of this hand coming down forever because that's their entire existence, even though to us it's 24 hours
2: yeah it's it's crazy but yeah that's that's happening in absolute slow motion so like they've done studies where they've looked at like how does a bird catch a fly like that should amaze you to begin with right flies move so fast to us no to a bird that fly is going in slow motion all right and that's the same thing that's happening with deer when you're moving and you think you're moving fast or you're moving subtly you're doing that's slow for them there's they're able they have twice as long to pick it up if, if that makes sense Sort of. <laughs> well, it all comes back to this mo- this idea of like all they care about, their whole eye, their whole all their whole brain is wired simply to pick up motion. That's how they detect predators. You and I, we don't, we're not made to uh, pick up motion. What we're made to do is discern objects. Like I see a person, I look at that person, I discern who they are. Deer don't care about that. They just want to have a basically a scan of their environment and just be able to pick up something that's moving. That's what worries them. And given that, it also means that quick motions or jaggy motions, or you just trying to be more subtle with your movements, that's not subtle to a deer. That's not fast to a deer. So if you move, don't be surprised when they peg you.
1: Okay, this is going to maybe be way off here. Is this is this part of the reason why we figured out how to throw stuff to kill things? Because if we just took off after a deer, we're not built for it.
2: It's one hundred. It's it's we one hundred percent. Well, if you look, all right, you want me to go into this, but if you look at like basically our perception, it's all about social interactions with each other. And a lot of our stuff, like, you know, our eyes aren't necessarily just made to be good predators, but also like the social interactions between us. And so we had to, at some point, become good at killing them without actually chasing them down and ambushing them because we're nothing compared to a prey species that actually is hunted all the time.
1: Has, have, have any, has anyone done any studies on, so we're, we're talking whitetails and, you know, we can, we can go back through, you know, the last couple hundred thousand years and figure out probably what was the, the major predators for whitetails and, and why this would evolve. Has anybody done anything like this with like axis deer from India and the,
2: you know, tigers or any of the other deer subspecies? So they've done it with fallow deer and they're, they're, they're similar. Um, you know, you got to keep in mind that white-tailed deer are pretty late evolutionarily. Like, they're they're one of the more recent kind of additions to the deer family. If you look at the more historic ones or even something like fallows, you know, it's still ancestrally held that it's all about detecting, detecting, detecting. Yep.
1: So this this refresh rate and them sort of living in this, I don't know, it, maybe this is wrong, but like a, compared to how we perceive stuff, like a, a little bit of a slow-mo world where they're yeah. Where they're picking up stuff instantly. You know, we think of it like, if you look at it from the perspective of what we're talking about, it's like, okay, if there's a tiger or a mountain lion or something crouched in the grass and that sucker takes off the the earlier detection system you have, the better you, chance you have to get away. And now we can take that as hunters and go, okay, well, just if I dumb this down, when I'm sitting in my tree stand and that deer's, you know, approaching 50 yards away. And I think that I'm out of its field of view and I stand up and that sucker catches me; it's over. I mean, it's
2: it's that it's it's why they jump a an arrow. You know, like you and I, like literally, like can't even see that arrow go, and yet they can hear and process that they're in danger and start the duck within a time frame of a, an arrow getting to them in twenty yards. I mean, just think about that. And it's because that is actually happening slower to them. Yeah. And they're, you know, that, that's
1: an interesting example, because everybody, we, we say, oh, you're ducking the arrow or jumping the string. And all they're doing is just getting away from a perceived threat that they can perceive real fast. It's not like they're sitting there thinking an arrow just got shot at me. They heard a noise that alarmed them and they loaded up their legs to take off.
2: Bingo. Bingo. It's just instinctual. It's like, OK, I didn't see it, but I heard it. Yeah. And their hearing isn't much different than ours. So, you know, it's about identical. So, you know, just some kind of spark, you know, some sound that doesn't sound natural, time to, time to haul off. So
1: th- their hearing is
2: the same, but they're, or, you know,
1: similar, but their reaction time is way faster. Yep. That's exactly right. <sighs> how, how do hunters use that? Just don't
2: move? <laughs> well, there, you, there's nothing that hunters don't already know. You know, if you're going to, you know, get above them, Right. If you look at how deer basically see their world, they're meant to look kind of down and scan the horizon uh, straight ahead of them. They're not used to being hunted up. You know, you get about about 20 feet, 15, 20 feet up, you're out of their line of sight unless they're lifting their head. Uh, if you're going to move, always have something behind you. They have poor depth perception, so this is just basic hunter knowledge 101. Get you know get your silhouette covered. If you're you know that'll help them not see the movement. If you don't have a silhouette, if you're silhouetted at all, be really, really tight with your movement. Don't be surprised when they peg you there. It's basically like you hunt for a couple of years and you know everything that I'm saying. You know what I'm I'm getting at? I know exactly what you're getting at, man.
0: ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy Can we talk a little bit
1: about the difference between them perceiving movement, you know, on the ground, around them versus above them? Because that's, that's an important distinction.
2: Right, so they are anatomically made to perceive threats on the ground, okay? Their biggest predators back in the day were some type of, you know, wolf and cougar type, you know, combination, right? Uh, and so when we think about that, it really comes as no surprise that they have a hard time seeing up above them. And it's not just like they have a hard time seeing it, but actually their vision gets more blurry. If you and I like look straight ahead of each other, actually on the periphery of our vision, it's quite blurry. And it's the same for deer, right? So they're looking straight ahead. And like, as you get further and further higher up in the trees, if you will, it's blurrier and blurrier. So you're able to camouflage in more and more. But again, remember that all these nice fine detail camouflage patterns that nice fine detail that you're talking about doesn't mean crap to a deer that's 20, 30 yards away from you and already you're blurry. It's all blending of those colors. So you want to, you know, if you're, you're either got some good blobs going on or you don't. At that point, that's where it comes into. If you're one solid blob or you don't have a really strong campfire and that has big differences in that, those shapes, uh, then don't be surprised that that they'll still trigger them to see you because you're, even though they, they're not made to see you, you're still in their field of view. Um, If you have a couple decent camo patterns or a bunch of bigger macro blobs, if you will, you can get away with a lot.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying and what you alluded to before with people, hunters with some experience definitely understand this. When you, you know, when you get up there and you're in a little tiny tree and you're silhouetted against a bright sky or, you know, the sunset or whatever, if even something that had terrible vision would be able to see the movement there better.
2: One million percent, you know, that's, that's what they're going to key in on. It's all about taking the blob. I keep saying blob, but, you know, the figure that is yourself and either hiding it behind something or moving ever so subtly that you don't cue them. But in the end, I can't stress enough the importance of covering your silhouette. Uh, that will break up the movement pattern uh, because it'll basically con- they have poor depth perception. It will converge. That tree basically converges with you into one thing. Yeah. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, I set ninety percent of my stands
2: to be behind the tree and shoot around it. Um, yeah, those 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 saddles, you know, the saddle harnesses and all that, they make a really big difference in that. Um, I remember, you know, the first time I ever sat in a in a tower deer hunting, I kept getting pegged by deer. I was like, "Why? I'm covered. Why am I getting?" And I realized real quick, I when instinctively when i got into the tower blind i had put a bunch of twigs up behind me to like stop my movement and then well the deer were used to like seeing nothing there and so all of a sudden now there's a freak them out it's all about keeping with your environment so
1: i want to ask you about that then so when you you know we, we we've talked about how they can see certain colors and what and what what light position or what light is beneficial to them. We've talked about movement, but what about that deer? When you, you know, you're, you're up in your stand, you don't move. It's not a deer you want to shoot and it's just walking by. You feel like it's, it's over and that deer stops and looks right up at you and you haven't moved.
2: Right. That has everything to do with your, that you're not blending in with your background because your camo pattern doesn't, remember it's almost like a bright yellow color. You got to remember that all your camel patterns are basically looking some subtle variation of yellow. When you start to realize that, well, then you're not blending in with your brown tree. In fact, most camel patterns aren't blending in with their surroundings all that well. Just you have really shitty vision. Yep. Right. Yep. <laughs> so, like, yeah, at that point, it's just they pegged you because you're sitting still, silhouette against the tree.
1: Yeah. Well, isn't is there an element to that of just? you know, their, their life is condensed to, you know, say a square mile is their home range and they know it real, real well.
2: And something new. No. Yeah. No, I mean, anyone that's ever hunted, you know, out of a ground blind or something, they'll tell you like, it's a, yeah. Like all of a sudden I know they can't see me yet. They're snorting all day at that ground blind. Like uh, no doubt that there's something unique about it, but they have to be able to pick up that it's something unique about it. Uh, You know, ideally, but a good, pattern would do or good set would do is you could sit up there and they wouldn't be able to tell that there's something new going on there so it all comes back to again like them being able to detect you is the problem not that you're something new yeah does that make sense oh
1: absolutely um what what about the deer what what are deer doing when you get that old doe that comes in and she's she looks up at you and she stomps and does the head bob what's
2: she doing so it's like um so you got she's actually trying to unsilhouette you or get depth perception from her environment. So like, I don't know if you ever see it, but when like squirrels jump trees, they'll move their head a bunch before they jump a tree. And that's squirrels have the same thing as deer. They have a really good field of view because they don't want to get eaten by hawks and everything else. But that means you only get good depth perception when your eyes actually cross over each other. That's why you and I have excellent depth perception. Our field of view on both eyes crosses over for a majority of the view deer squirrels. Most prey animals don't have that. They ha- they'd they rather have an expanded field of view, but not a lot of overlap between their two eyes. So they have terrible depth perception. So what they do to get that depth perception instead is roll that image over their eye by moving their head. And what they're doing is they're trying to get different images of the same kind of picture, if you will, and it enhances some kind of depth perception. So what they're trying to do is see you versus their background.
1: They almost, they almost have to like build a. A map of what they're looking at, it be, because of the way they're. Oh, that's interesting.
2: So, so, in in some way, you're in some ways, if you want to think of it, so simple as like they're trying to make you a three dimensional object from their two dimensional world, but it's not it's not that simple. But that's really kind of it.
1: I I think it was in the study in the in the uh, the original study we were talking about that you did where the the blue light gosh, I think this was what, what you had written about when deer spooked and they take off, they flip their tail up and that's a very, uh, you know, we look at that and that's a white flag going through the woods, but to them that's tied to their, uh, blue light sensitivity, right?
2: Yeah. So if you look at what they're sensitive to, uh, that, that tail reflects a ton of blue. And so that tail, when it goes up is visible, even in the darkest of dark to deer, So yeah, it's a bright white tail to us, but to them, it's probably a bright blue tail or a very like, you know what I'm saying? And it's got a, and, and so when they throw it up there, it's an alert at any light condition. So it's reflecting exactly what they're most sensitive to. So this,
1: uh, what makes me curious about that is a lot of people will take a deer decoy and they'll tie a little, you know, paper towel or some kind of white flag to the ears and the tail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they're pro- that's probably not reflecting the same light as a deer's actual tail, huh?
2: No, no, it's not. I mean, you're probably getting away more with, you know, deer coming into it because they're curious and it's another deer and there's movement. I mean, there's a bunch going on there, but it's not, that doesn't necessarily have the same color as a deer tail would to them. What's next, man? So you you do this that you've done, and you said you've done what four studies on deer vision now? Yeah, we've done uh, four different studies on deer vision, looking at their color discrimination. So like things like it's not just like we want to know just how well they can pick out this color of green versus this color of yellow, things like that. Uh, the movement, the refresh rate, all of that. Um, you know, we're working with a bunch or uh, some companies if actually to deter deer vehicle collisions like you know trying to make a headlight that actually you and I see as a normal headlight but a deer can't see that's that's the main application for a lot of this stuff and then you know spraying the word about thinking about how a deer actually perceives its world versus how you perceive its world and why those are so different and how you should kind of incorporate that into your hunting strategies is the other thing but the research is is basically more or less wrapped up we know we've we've gone and been there and done that for almost all of it so what's next
1: maybe just professionally what are you like man I want to know I want to work on this
2: <laughs> so I'm I, so I've pivoted completely and I, I do a lot of work now with I work with Mike Chamberlain on a lot of turkey stuff I do a lot of duck work and I do a lot of deer management stuff at like broader scale. So stuff with like working with state agencies to set regulations and stuff like that. So I've, I've had my fill of all the deer physiology stuff and I love to tinker with it, but professionally I'm onto more of the like applied management behaviors of animals type stuff. All right.
1: What, what drives you the most nuts knowing what you know about deer vision and deer biology. What drives you the most nuts that you hear just the average hunter say
2: <laughs> about deer biology? There's there's <laughs> there's a couple things. The general. I- I'll tell you what. The worst thing. The, the toughest thing as a biologist is is the general skepticism that hunters have towards scientists and regulators. Uh, sometimes that's warranted in in the political world that we live in with decisions that are made. But oftentimes the people that are helping make decisions and inform science got into it for a reason is because we're obsessive hunters ourselves now from a uh, deer physiology and all this other stuff all the science i've done and what bothers me the most is uh, two things when i go out there and i see uh a state that's the department of transportation that's spending millions of dollars to put together deer deterrent stuff that simply won't work that's frustrating and a waste of money and then hunters that that basically latch on to a a specific brand of clothing that they think the camouflage is somehow superior than another one when it's really all the same. And what you really just want to buy is a quality garment, not necessarily the camel pattern that's behind it.
1: Yeah. You you want something that's actually going to keep you warm and have a nice weight to warmth ratio and allow you to draw your bow and move and stay out there in the cold and all that good stuff.
2: And we've moved. So, you know, in the last 10 years, there's there's several really excellent camouflage brands that I don't care what color they are, what squares and circles they put together but the quality of their clothing and the comfort that you have in the field is a game changer and that's what we should be focusing on Mm
1: -hmm. so you you, i wanted to ask you that you kind of just brought it up there uh i kind of i kind of wanted to bring this full circle you know to ask you if you were keeping deer from getting hit down there in georgia by cars now or is this this is still i'm guessing a work in progress huh
2: so there's one study that followed up on our study and all right so you put together a headlight right and you say, OK, let's see if this this will work. Let's put together a headlight and uh, see if deer if it'll lower deer vehicle collisions. Well, the way you do that is you've got to drive a, a car at deer going 55 miles an hour. And like <laughs> that's good luck with getting that through, uh, you know, your approvals. But, hey, there's one group that did it and uh, they found they didn't actually change the headlights. They instead did something which was interesting. They took a light and actually showed reversed it. And actually flashed it onto the car so that you and I, it wouldn't, you wouldn't see the light, but it basically puts a glow of a vehicle around while they were approaching deer. And they found that it decreased deer vehicle collision. So there's ongoing work there, but it's a slow process. Anything that you ever want to tinker, not just with the science, but the actual, you know, that's a federal level regulation of like, let's change headlights. Mm, you know, that's, that's going to be like a 30 year career goal.
1: Well, sure. I mean, there's a ton of money at stake there, which you know, I guess could go either way with it. But so when you talk about that and you say, okay, we're working on like a headlight with certain colors that, you know, humans perceive as bright as we need to see them, but deer don't see that. Why, why do you want deer to not see that light?
2: Oh yeah. So it's, it's uh, because the deer in the headlight look is a real thing. So they're so sensitive to light. We talked about that, that mirror reflectance and stuff like that. They're so sensitive to light at night. Right, so like I said, they're reflecting light like crazy. All of a sudden, two bright or a bright light that's combined literally blinds them. It shuts down their photoreceptors. It's not like they just, oh, they don't know what's behind the car. It's that, like they don't know what what's behind those lights. That's no doubt. But they're literally standing still because they're temporarily blinded. They have no clue what's going on. So if you can get something that they're less sensitive to, you're less likely to blind them they can then perceive that a car is coming at them 60 miles an hour and get out of the way. It's that simple.
1: Yeah. And and this would be something that would, you know, if, if it worked would reduce, you know, deer vehicle collisions by, you know, a certain degree, right? Like it's not going to fix all of them because they're going to run out on the roads.
2: You know, most, most of the deer that get hit, or I I won't say most, a proportion of the deer that get hit are simply rutting bucks that are running around and, are just got one thing on their mind and it's not even a matter of them being blinded. They're going to run straight into your car anyway. Like, yeah, it's not the solve all, but it's all about small mitigation efforts. You know, they found that basically the best thing to deter deer vehicle collisions is simply put up a sign that says drive slow deer crossing, you know, and like flash in front of people. It's a human, it's a human problem more than it is a deer problem oftentimes. But our hope is that this can make a small incremental change to a pretty big problem. Yeah,
1: I mean, you you look at uh, the the driver awareness is a huge component. How, you know how close the the woods are, or the the cover is to the road, or how much of a ditch you have to see them. There's there's a lot of things going on there. But what an interesting! I just think that's a cool opportunity for somebody like you who's a who's a diehard bow hunter to suddenly get that professional opportunity to dig into a problem like that that has all these ancillary potential discoveries beyond a pretty admirable goal of keeping people from hitting deer.
2: <laughs> I've, You know, I, in general, I've lived the dream ever since I got in this field, you know, like uh, I'm an obsessive hunter and everything I do, I won't lie. I, I relate it to how I'm hunting and how others are hunting and all of that. But to be able to turn some of the information that we're getting and apply it to real world issues that are much bigger than just, can I kill a deer more efficiently? It's very, very satisfying. It's a, it's a good feeling. So,
1: if you had, if if there was unlimited funding and no real oversight, you're just free, man. This is this is you just do your thing. What would you study with deer? What what's one thing that you're like, man? I want to learn this. Or or do you feel like we're kind of tapped out on deer? You want
2: my real opinion? I absolutely. I I think, I think we're we're not tapped out on deer. Uh, CWD and questions regarding CWD are going to be ever present and ever important and how CWD interacts with predation, hunting, all these other things that are killing deer super important to me, the more pressing issue or what I'm more and more increasingly interested in is how are we going to aggregate and use that data to to actually make a more robust uh, management approach besides just kind of being like, okay, coyotes kill deer. What does that mean? Should we kill what? Two less does in the bag limit. That sounds right, and just go with it. Instead, it's like, how are we going to integrate all of this science into some kind of holistic management practice that responds to conditions on the ground quickly? That's where I think science is going to head, so that it's transparent, clear, and quick to the actual population needs at a local level. That's probably where we're at with deer management. Yeah, that's. And by by the way, that that was sarcastic about people saying like. Oh yeah. Just two less does, but more or less, you know,
1: (laughs) no, 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 I get it. Uh, I mean, that that is one of the things I was, I was just talking to a buddy of mine who's a a conservation officer here in Minnesota. And so he deals with a wide range of, you know, questions and, you know, he, he deals with the the DNR as far as their biologists and their science research. And then he deals with the end user, you know, the wide variants of hunters and fishermen out there. And one of the things that We just kind of got to talking about is how easy it is as a hunter to be like, okay, I look at deer management through my 40 acres that I've hunted because my grandpa owns it and that's what I care about. And then you look at, you know, just take Minnesota as an example, a state that's pretty big, really diverse habitat wise and human population wise and deer population wise and predator wise. And then you start looking at an animal like the whitetail and how... There, you know there's a billion dollar industry built around this animal and and it's one of the most interactive species that we have out there and so as far as like the science around it and, and what we have to learn this is a complicated situation because we're so involved with them and they play so well with man in so many different ways. It's not you know it's not quite as simple as an isolated population of some animal, you know, largely unaffected by man, I guess I'd say.
2: Sure. And 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 In the deer ecology world, a lot of it is we're building off things that have already been done for many years. You know, each study is a is a logical stepwise progress towards a better knowledge of how deer are being affected by multiple processes. You know, and back in the day, it was like, okay, how does this affect deer? How does this affect deer? And then we started to do how do this and this combined affect deer? And now we're like three, four, five layers deep in it. And the whole goal here is. You know, nowadays in a world of social media and constant information at your fingertips, how do we be as transparent with the science as, as possible, and how do we be as rapidly responding to issues as possible? And that is where I think deer management—it's already going there. I mean, like I'm not saying anything new, I'm not saying anything surprising, but that's where we're heading. Is the process getting there might be painful because it takes a lot to get there, but that's where it's got to go.
1: And is that, are you, are you so emphatic about that? Because without, you know, support from the hunting population, this is a real, this is a bitch.
2: Yeah. I, it's all about, it's all about, I think I told you from the beginning is, uh, or when you said like, what bothers me, it's the idea that the hunters don't buy into what we're telling. And listen, I grew up in New York, uh, I hunt Pennsylvania. I know what it's like to have you know, some, I've heard a lot of different people being skeptical about decisions that are made. And so to me, I'm only emphatic about it because I know these people and I know the good they're trying to do. And I know where the message gets, or you can see where the message gets lost. And so to me, the, the idea is in a day where data is that can be at your fingertips. I want you to see that data. I want you to understand why we're doing what we're doing. It just makes sense to me. So that's where you give me unlimited money. It's it's promoting transparency. It's promoting data collection and it's promoting sound management. It's not necessarily going to another spot to do a different type of iteration of, of the deer vision study, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, there is there has historically been a pretty significant disconnect between a lot of state game agencies and the end user and what's really going on there. And that has led to a lot of problems.
2: Yeah. Well, it comes back to a bunch of different things, right? One is messaging, but it also comes back to scale of management. You've talked about the guy in his 40 acres, what that guy on his 40 acres and me on my 40 acres, what we see is a microcosm of, of something that a deer biologist is managing for. They're managing at best, you know, a region. That's where we all want to head. You know, a lot of states have that already, but theoretically we'd make that region as small and small as possible so that the two match up. But oftentimes it's so misaligned. You've got somebody that's managing and doing their stuff well in an otherwise pretty desolate landscape for deer and they have to suffer those consequences You see what I'm saying. Or vice versa, somebody's not doing the right thing in a place that's got a, a pretty liberal season. So in the end, decreasing the scale of our management, and responsiveness, it all comes back to sound data collection. And honestly, that is not something that that's, that's something everybody wants, but time, money, effort, there's only so much you can possibly do. That's why I say it with a unlimited budget part.
1: (laughs) All right, man. Last question for you here. So as a, as a passionate hunter and a, and a deer lover and a guy who's involved in the science what is one thing, well, like, what's one thing that pops out into your mind that you've learned through your research or somebody else's research that you've been studying up on where you're like, you know what, I'm taking that into the field with me and I'm never going to forget that.
2: How sensitive deer are all animals are to, to hunting pressure. It's not, I used to, I used to know like, okay, well, um, I'll just hunt this spot. My favorite spot, uh, with the right wind conditions with this, with this, I can hunt it when, when I want no, there's like a legacy effect of you going in and like, and just being in that area, like I completely changed how I access my properties. I only go in from the edges. I minimize disturbance, not just on a good wind, but like I take as few freaking steps as possible. Like, and because our the, the science has clearly shown that just like your presence in that area is a tangible thing that deer can pick up on and they'll they'll start to avoid it really quickly. And that's probably why so many bucks are shot during the rut is they give up that (laughs) that awareness to chase those around, you know, plus being more active. Well, yeah. And this is I I love that
1: you said that because we are so I kind of look at this like it's really easy to spend somebody else's money. Right. Like it's really easy to be like Jeff Bezos should pay this much in taxes or he should spend this much or give this much to charity. But we don't look at ourselves the same way. Typically, yeah, it, we do the same thing with hunting pressure, right? Like we're always like, "Oh, this asshole came in, and he walks around at first and last light and scares them all away." But we don't think about the thing we can control, which is our pressure in a situation, because we're so biased toward what we want to do. And like you said, well, if I go in here and the wind's right, it's all good.
2: Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like you know, just even with the stuff we do with ducks and turkeys, and what we see with deer, and just about everything. I mean. Animals respond to hunters and it's because I, I now realized your common sense. Like they have to, there's no other animal that they can interact with from 80 yards away and be killed. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like they've got to be on it immediately. And so, you know, them turning nocturnal them shifting their patterns, it's immediate, it's quick, it's lasting. And so it completely changes how I approach almost every situation I, I, I'm very strategic in where I go. I'm very strategic in how I approach it. I'm strategic in if I have to leave when things go differently. And I've seen, you know, I harvest more deer or bigger deer because of it, I think. For sure, man.
1: Uh, Such good stuff. I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This, this was a blast, man.
2: Yeah, man. Appreciate you having me. Thanks
1: again. That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for some more whitetail goodness. This has been Wired to Hunt, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for more whitetail content, be sure to check out the slash wired to see a pile of new articles each week by Mark, myself, and a whole slew of whitetail addicts. Or head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to view the weekly
0: content we put up.